in Pinellas Park, W262CP Bayonet Point. Brought to you by Moss Nissan. Locations in Newport Ridge. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. Peter was as bold as anybody could be. I remind you that on the day of Pentecost, with thousands of Jewish people in Jerusalem, Peter gets up and boldly proclaims to them that they murdered their own Messiah. They turned him over to the Romans, and they murdered him, and they were pierced in their hearts, and they said, what should we do? Pierced in their hearts. What a difference from a few days before when the same people were a lynch mob screaming for the death of Jesus. Now here they are in emotional agony over what they had done. Why the change? I'm convinced it wasn't Peter's persuasive argument. He was actually pretty aggressive. I think it was because God had opened their eyes to see that what Peter said was true. Welcome. I'm glad you joined us today as pastor-teacher Steve Kreloff leads us in this series of studies about the nature of the church. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. He teaches through the Bible a verse at a time, which is the inspiration for the name of this program. For the past several days, we've been considering Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20, in which Jesus first mentioned the church. We've been branching out to other passages that elaborate on the idea that Jesus briefly introduced. Let's begin now with just one verse, Matthew 16, verse 18. Here's Pastor Steve. Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew as we work our way through this marvelous passage in which Jesus is telling us about his church, the church that he would build. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18 says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. We continue in what really has become a mini-series on the nature of the church as we look at our, our Lord's words spoken to Peter in which he explained to the apostle the unique role that he would play in the establishment of the church that Jesus said he would build. But I want you to notice something, that in telling Peter about his special role in the building of the church, Jesus also revealed some very foundational truths about the church. The nature of the church, the function of the church, the church that he said he would build. He said that the church would be built upon a rock, and then he said the gates of Hades would not overpower it, He went on to say in verse 19 that Peter's involvement in the church would include having the keys of the kingdom, whatever that means, and we will find out what that means. He also said that Peter would be involved in binding and loosing on earth what has already been bound and loosed in heaven. So this passage is really more than instruction to Peter, or information, I should say, given to Peter. These are truths about the church. Now, truths mentioned here just briefly without a great deal of explanation. In fact, hardly any explanation. But folks, we are not left to speculate about the meaning of Christ's words concerning his church. Why? Because 
all of these truths laid out here in their embryonic form, just seed form about the church, just mentioned here briefly in Matthew 16, were later clarified, expanded, developed in the New Testament letters. And so we look to to those New Testament passages to help us understand more fully the meaning of our Lord's words about his church. Now, so far, we, as we've gone through this passage, we have seen two key truths. We've been able to identify two key truths that Jesus revealed about the nature of his church. Number one, he said that his church would be built upon a solid rock. He said at the beginning of verse 18, I also say to you that you're Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church. With these words, Jesus revealed that his church would be built upon a solid foundation of rock. That's what he meant. The thought here is that his church will be able to withstand all of the forces of evil that come against her because she has a solid foundation. Now, what kind of a strong foundation can handle all the forces of evil thrown at the church for all of these centuries? Only a foundation consisting of the truths of the word of God. In fact, the foundation is the word of God, regardless of the forces of persecution and attacks that have already come against the church and will continue to come against the church. Her footing remains on solid ground solid ground because she stands upon the immovable, unchanging, steadfast gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God. You see, all true believers are rooted and grounded in the word of God, in the steadfast truths of the gospel, regardless of what they have to endure in this life. In other words, the message of the Bible is what brought us to eternal life and what brought eternal life to us And our lives are built upon that message. We are grounded and rooted and we grow in that message. So how did the church become so settled on the word of God? How do we become so settled on the word of God? Well, the answer is that in the early days of the church, as the book of Acts reveals, the apostles preached these inspired truths about Christ and salvation. And the most prominent of those early gospel preachers was the Apostle Peter, whose very name, as we've already discussed, his very name means rock. He is Petros. He is rock. And that's why Jesus said that he would build his church upon Peter. But not Peter as a mere man, but Peter as a strong, rock-like, bold preacher of the Word of God. So although all the apostles preached the Word, there is no question that Peter was the leading apostolic figure in the early days of church history, the one whom Christ used to bring his church into existence on the day of Pentecost. That's when the church started. That's when the Holy Spirit began to indwell believers. And Peter was as bold as anybody could be. I remind you that on the day of Pentecost, which is a Jewish feast, with thousands of Jewish people in Jerusalem, people who had just a few weeks prior to this, called for Christ to be crucified, Peter gets up and boldly proclaims to them that they murdered their own Messiah. They turned him over to the Romans and they murdered him and they were pierced in their hearts and they said, what do we, what should we do? And Peter said, you, you've got to believe in Christ. You've got to repent of your sin. You've got to turn to the Lord. And after you're a believer, then you get baptized 
as evidence of following Christ. He said, when you believe in him, you'll be forgiven of your sins. And the Bible says that on that day alone, 3,000 souls were added. Added to what? The church. These were the first converts. Chapter 3 goes on to, in the book of Acts, tells us that Peter had a second sermon in which thousands more came into the church. And you know what? The church is still being built. It's built upon the sure foundation of the message of Peter and the apostles. Because even though Peter is not alive today, none of the apostles are alive today, there is no apostolic succession, their inspired message was written down, guided by the Holy Spirit, written down, recorded for us in a book we know as the New Testament. We continue in the apostles' doctrine. That's what we do. The inerrant, infallible word of God known as the New Testament. That's apostolic doctrine. So the first key truth that Jesus gave about the nature of his church is that the church would be built upon the solid rock, which by that he means Peter and his gospel preaching. The second key truth that Jesus gave about the nature of the church that he was about to build is that not only would the church be built upon the solid rock, but the church would be under his sovereign headship. His sovereign headship. Notice what Matthew sixteen eighteen goes on to say. I also say to you that you're Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, after telling Peter about the key role that he would have in the building of the church, Jesus proceeded to make it clear that neither Peter nor any other apostle would be responsible for the building of, of the church. That responsibility would exclusively belong to him, that is, to Jesus himself. Notice what Jesus said, I will build my church. He may build it, and he does build it, and he did build it, and continues to build it upon the preaching of Peter and and the apostles, but he'll be the one who will build it, not man. This statement about Jesus being the builder of the church established the important, folks, and critical fact that it would be his and his task alone, to bring people into his kingdom as he formed his church. Remember, the church is the household of God. The church is not a building. It's not a a religious organization. It's people, the family of God. And while he certainly would use Peter and other gospel witnesses in the salvation of individuals, why? Because faith comes only through the preaching of the word of God. Christ is the only one capable of sovereignly changing men's hearts and bringing about conversion. That is an essential truth that we all ought to know and believe. In other words, it is only by Christ's sovereign power and work of grace that people are converted and transformed from being hostile enemies of God to those who believe in Christ and surrender lovingly to his lordship. Now, we went to great lengths to explore the way that the Lord brings a hostile and self-focused sinner to himself. But let me remind you, and I remind you because these are critical truths, and we seldom hear it as we should. You don't often hear it in churches. You don't hear it preached on the radio, not very often, whoever you're listening to and Television, if you'd listen to television preachers, they're certainly not emphasizing this. In fact, some churches will go to great lengths to say, and I've heard this, because the sovereignty of God is such a controversial issue, 
we don't preach on it. We don't take a stand. You know what? When you do that, you've already taken a stand. You've already said we don't believe in it. Because if you believe in the sovereignty of God, how can you keep quiet about it? It is essential, as you'll see in just a moment. So let me remind you. First, God chooses some to be saved. And these chosen elect ones will become Christ's church. Paul tells us that these are the elect. Chosen before the foundation of the world, before God ever made the world, we were in his heart and mind. That's Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. However, as we noted, before the elect will be interested, able, and desirous of coming to Christ for salvation, they need spiritual life. They don't need a religious external makeover. They need spiritual life. And that's because, as Paul tells us, we all come into this world dead spiritually. Dead, no life at all. Physical life, but no spiritual life. We have a sin nature. The nature is the very core of what you are. At our core being, we are sinners. And we inherited the sin nature from our father, Adam. Which means not only are we spiritually dead and unresponsive to God, which we are, but we are actually, Paul tells us, hostile and opposed to Christ and the high moral standards of the word of God. We're not neutral. We're hostile and opposed to it. Now, what that means, practically speaking, is that in our daily lives, before we were converted, we did whatever we wanted to. Whatever brought us pleasure, whatever pleased us, Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2, 3, indulging the desires of the flesh and mind. We indulged in whatever our minds, our corrupt, depraved minds, told us to do whatever our flesh desired. And in doing so, we actively resisted the Lord ruling over us. In other words, we refused to bend our stubborn, self-willed hearts to the authority of Jesus Christ and his word. Therefore, the only way, folks, by which the elect will ever come to Christ for salvation is by first receiving spiritual life and a new nature. And in doing so, once they receive, by God's sovereign choice, spiritual life and a new nature, that new nature desires to follow and obey Christ. But prior to that, there is no interest. That's precisely what the Father does when he draws one of his elect to Christ. John 6.44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, did you hear that? Did you hear that clearly? Jesus said, if you have ears to hear, then hear. Jesus said that no one, meaning Absolutely no one can come to him because they don't have the ability or the interest in coming to him for salvation unless the Father draws them, brings them to Christ. Then they can and they will come. See, when God draws someone to his son, he breaks in sovereignly upon their lives and he gives them by his grace spiritual life. That, that's what it means to be born again. That's what it means to be regenerated. He gives you a divine nature. The Holy Spirit gives you life. And because you now have a new and divine nature that longs to follow the Lord, we gladly repent and we gladly believe the gospel. 
No one has to force us. No one can force us. We surrender our lives to Christ as Lord and Savior. That is precisely what Jesus was talking about when he said in John chapter 10, my sheep, meaning his elect ones, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And I give to them eternal life. So as we hear his voice from the pages of the living word of God, calling us to himself for salvation, we gladly abandon our sin and we follow him. But watch this. We only follow him because God has first given us spiritual life and a new nature. How can dead people, spiritually dead people, ever repent, ever believe? They can't. They need life first. And it is this new nature within us that desires and even empowers us to come to Christ for salvation. And the moment that we do come to him, calling upon the name of the Lord to save us, as we repent of our sin and trust in Christ's death on our behalf for the forgiveness of sins, we not only are forgiven, we not only receive eternal life, we not only enter into fellowship with him, but we become part of the living church that Christ is building. Now, that's how Jesus builds his church. One by one, he works in the lives of his elect, those who were chosen to salvation in eternity past, and he brings about their conversion at a certain point in time. So understand that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the only reason that you are a believer in him is because God did this work in your life, chose you, gave you life, drew you to himself. Your conversion didn't come about because you were more spiritually perceptive than others in grasping the truth of the gospel, or that you were, and I hate this word, but I'm going to use it, lucky enough. That's a word from the world. Believers ought never to think that anything happened to them by luck. Either God is sovereign or not. The world says lucky. We ought to say whatever. Grace, sovereignty, providentially, all of that, but not lucky. But for the sake of communication, I'll say that there are some who think they were lucky enough to have someone who came along and clearly and patiently explained the gospel to them. Now, it's true that God may have have certainly used some very patient and caring human witnesses in the process of drawing you to himself. But we need to understand that that's not why you came to Christ. You came to him because Christ himself was the one who was sovereignly at work in your life, convicting you of your sin, convincing you of your lost condition, giving you an understanding of the meaning of his death on the cross, and then giving you new life as well as granting you repentance and faith to believe in him. Now, I realize that many of you have never thought about your salvation in this way. This is somewhat foreign to you. Because from our perspective, it really looks like we simply heard the gospel, it made sense to us, and we decided to believe in Jesus. That's certainly how I felt when I was converted as a university student at USF. I was witnessed to by a friend. I started reading my Bible and eventually I felt the need to make a decision for Christ. But even though that was how I saw it then and how many of us see it in our own lives, that's really not the way salvation comes to any of us. That's a perception that we have, but that's not reality. The truth of the matter is that we only decided to believe in Jesus because in eternity past, God the Father decided that we would believe in him. 
There, there is no decision you made independent of what God decided for you. Now, if you've been viewing your salvation with that faulty perception that you're a believer merely because you made the wise decision to trust Christ on your own, then you need to listen to the following words by our dear friend Spurgeon. I quoted Spurgeon because he so wonderfully articulated that before the worlds were made, God had us on his heart, how he loved the church. But today, I want us to hear Spurgeon on the subject of how he, Charles Spurgeon, came to understand how he became a Christian. Listen to this. Nobody spoke and wrote like Spurgeon. That's why his his words are just magnificent. He said this, when I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no thought that the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is at first aware of this. I can recall the very day and hour when I first received those truths in my own soul, when they were, as John Bunyan says, burnt into my heart as with a hot iron. And I can recollect how I felt that I had grown on a sudden from a babe into a man, that I had made progress in scriptural knowledge through having found once and for all the clue to the truth of God. He writes, one night, one week night, when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. Just disregard that part here as applying. (laughs) But probably was very true in Spurgeon's case. He writes, the thought struck me. How did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then, in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine, I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. End of quote. Now, I hope that you can see and say the same thing about your salvation that Charles Spurgeon said about his, that your salvation is ascribed totally to God and not to you making the right decision to trust Christ. See, this, this is not simply an abstract academic issue that has little bearing on your daily life. Folks, this is the heart. This is the heart of your daily life. I can clearly see that divine influence in my conversion. As a teenager, I searched for years, nearly desperate to find the answers to the great questions of life. And no one around me was asking those questions, much less answering them. God finally led me to a new friend who knew where to find them in Scripture, and what attitude I needed to have in order to understand those Scriptures. At the time, I had no idea God was involved in my quest, but now, as I look back, His influence was obvious. I'm glad you could tune in today to Verse by Verse, a daily Bible class of the year with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. If you're in the area on a Sunday and would like to experience Lakeside in person, the address is 1893 Sunset Point Road. You can learn more at lakesidechapel.com. 
There's a story about a grizzled old farmer one Sunday speaking up in church as the offering was being collected. He shouted out, Pastor, I thought you said salvation was free. The pastor replied, It is, but it's kind of like plumbing. The water is free, but you have to pay to pump it. Producing and airing these practical and biblical lessons is very much a labor of love, but there are expenses involved. If you've been blessed and would like to help with those expenses, we make it easy at our website, versebyverseradio.org. And if you're already giving, we are very grateful for your generosity. Just click the Giving tab on the website, versebyverseradio.org. Or if you'd like to stream or download previous broadcasts, you can find them all at no charge on the Message Archive. I'm your announcer, Jerry Peterson. While we are clearly commanded to lovingly communicate the gospel to those around us, we are not commanded to convince anyone of anything. We are the witnesses, and the Holy Spirit convinces those whom He has chosen. That's how the church grows numerically, not by our eloquence or persuasion, but by the power of God to bring spiritually dead people to life.